guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you are listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, We're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WV and then clicking on the Give tab. Uh, We would love to have your support, and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to, to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays. Enjoy the podcast. It's so good to be with you guys. Let's try this again. Christ is risen. Well done. Some of you are still catching up. That's all right. You'll get there by the end of the service. Hey, I am three services in, and we have done that free, free, I'm forever, I'm free, every service, and I try to contain myself, but if the voice goes, just know I'm hanging in there, okay? Um, If you are new, again, welcome. So glad you guys are here. I got to tell you right up front, as a pastor, on Easter and Christmas, there is a a certain level of stress as I start to prepare a sermon, and and I'll tell you why, because first of all, all of you have probably heard this story that I'm going to tell you today before. You've gotten some version of this. Maybe you've been in church and on an Easter or on a Christmas. And so I recognize you're judging me based on every other sermon you've ever heard from Easter and Christmas. Now, the other pressure that I feel is some of you are kind of like, this is your opportunity. You're coming back into church. And so I feel this sense of, if I do really well, you might come back next week. And that would be cool. Like, we like you. We'd love for you to come back. So I do feel that. Um, But it was cool. Last night, about 1145, I got a text from a good, good friend, a mentor of mine. And he just texted me. He said, just preach Jesus. He said, don't preach the perfect sermon. Just preach Jesus. Just let it be Jesus tomorrow. And that was so good to hear. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. It's not complex, but it's a simple message. Um, Friday, my, my family and I, Carrie and I and, and our daughters, we celebrated our middle daughter, Presley's birthday. She turned 12. And so you can be praying as another one's getting ready for teenagerdom. And uh, we, just, we just, especially me, I'm kind of alone in that house. Even the dog's a woman. Um, <laughs> As we were driving around, we got to talking about the nature of Easter. We got to talking about Holy Week and all that that meant. And so we talked about Palm Sunday and how Jesus rode into Jerusalem being celebrated as a king. And just a few days later, those people would turn on him and want him to be crucified. And we talked about Thursday and the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples and how Judas betrayed him and it led to his arrest and this just incredible torture on the cross. And we talked about Good Friday and how his suffering was something that he had actually predicted, that he actually told his disciples, hey, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll rise again. And man, I got to tell you, as I was talking to my kids, I had a sermon, like I was preaching. I was ready to get to Resurrection Sunday. And as it so often happens in our house, they interrupted me. And they started talking. Like with that many women in the house, there's a lot of words to get out. And usually I'm, I'm, I'm not okay with that. You always am. I, um, Carrie's sitting in the front row, so I can't lie this service. <laughs> But they have a lot of words. That's the reality. We're adopting another one that's going to learn English, and she's going to have a lot of words too. And so I just thought maybe they could let me preach the Easter sermon to them, but they didn't. They got amazed by the fact that Jesus had said, hey, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm coming back. And they started talking about how ridiculous that was, how absurd that it was, and what it was like then, and what it would be like now if we could say, hey, four days from now, we're going to have tacos. And then we actually had tacos. Like, that would be crazy. And I was like, that would be awesome. But we, we were talking about that, and, I, and I'll just, I, I started thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, they're right. Like, this story is absurd. 
Some of us, like, you're looking at me like it's normal to come to a place on a Sunday and talk about a guy that was dead that then lived again and told people he was going to die and then live again. And we just are like, yeah, like, praise God. That's awesome. Like, we're so white American. Like, wait. It's an absurd story. It's a ridiculous story. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. At this, at this church, in New Community, we talk in series. I don't just give sermons. We create series because we want to have conversations. And so for several weeks now, about six weeks, we've been talking about this idea of the comeback. What does it mean for us to fight our way back out of failure, to, to recover from being broken down, to fight back against the consequences of life? And we've, we've told these stories of coming back. And you had to know, if you've been around here, and even if you haven't, you had to know, this is where I was going, because this is the most ridiculous comeback of all time. I know Tiger Woods did really good last week, right? <laughs> Lots of preachers are talking about Tiger Woods today, because it's a, it's a resurrect. Like, we get that. This is more ridiculous than that. Like, this is an absurd story. We've got to talk about Jesus' comeback, and I'm going to get there today, but in fact, I want to, before I get there, I want to tell you actually four other stories. Now, you chose the late service. The other services. I was on a time crunch, okay? I'm not on a time crunch now. So these stories, there's four of them. We'll get you out of here for, for your lunch. Four individuals, four stories that are actually woven together in the hours and the days and even the centuries after Jesus' resurrection and how each of these stories found a comeback. These are just stories. It's not a complex message today, like I said, just stories. Here's the first one, and, and you probably know this one. This is the story of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was the overly aggressive leader, right? Like he was the type A, he was the kid in the class, there's lots of teachers here, that always had his hand up. Like at times Jesus was probably like, put your hand down, I'm going to call on somebody else, Peter, just, just simmer down. Like that's kind of who he was. And at one point he was so out there as a leader that Jesus looked at him and he said, Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. To which I think Peter looked at the other, other 11 and was like, did you hear that? <laughs> I'm the rock. Like I think that's what he was doing. But see, Peter had all the potential and talent in the world, but there was a problem because his problem was that his potential at the most critical moments in Jesus' life gets swallowed up by fear and overcome by failure. I don't know if you remember that part of the story, but Peter is sharing the meal with Jesus, and he tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, even if all fall away from you, I will not deny you. And Peter says, no, you will, then you'll actually deny me three times in one night. And then he does. Over the course of that night, we see Peter failing three times as Jesus suffers. He actually looks at a little child and says, the child says, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, I wasn't with Jesus. He tells us he swears and he says, no, I was not. And I've always wondered about this. In the midst of his failure, see, we come to church on Easter Sunday. We're excited. We buy new clothes. I got a new shirt today. <laughs> we buy new clothes. We're so excited about the resurrection. What did the resurrection feel like for Peter? Did you ever think about that? Like, I know eventually he was excited. Eventually it changed his life. Eventually he created the church that, that God wanted him to. But in those opening moments, I think Peter may have been like, oh man, I'm in trouble. I failed him. Like, what's this mean? Is he going to be disappointed? Is he going to show up and lecture me? Like, my shame is so overpowering. See, Peter had fallen apart. He'd lost everything. And, and I love the scriptures because they don't leave us wondering what it was like for Peter. They actually tell us. In John 21, here's what it says. Afterward, after this resurrection, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Watch this. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. They're hanging out by the sea. 
I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they went out, they got in the boat, and I love this little fact, but that night they caught nothing. Peter had failed Jesus, and now he was a bad fisherman. He couldn't even go back to the life that he had before, right? Like he's living in this, this tension, and I can't prove this, but I think at this point, based on the story John tells, that the rumors of Jesus' resurrection were getting around, and I think this is kind of Peter's way of hiding and going, I don't want to deal with these rumors. Like, what do you do when you're hiding in shame, right? Don't you go just do something that's easy for you? Don't you just go and do something you're familiar with, something that's common, something you know that you can get right? See, shame ha has a tendency to put us in a place of hiding. Like, imagine what Peter wondering, is Jesus really alive? Like, what's, what's going to happen if he shows up? But here's what the scriptures tell us. They catch nothing all night. That's frustrating, right? You failed, and now you're frustrated because you didn't catch any fish. But verse 4 says this. Early in the morning... Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> Jesus is great, right? Like that, that's kind of like, hey, have you caught nothing? Like, I don't know. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. The next verse says there were 153 fish. That's real fishermen, right? You count them and you tell how big they were. That's beautiful because in that very moment, it tells us that, Jeter, that Peter strips off his outer garment, he jumps in the water, and he runs to Jesus because he recognizes that only his Savior, who was dead and is now alive, could provide a catch of fish like that. It goes on, and it says that they make a breakfast of the fish, and they're hanging out by the sea, and Jesus begins this conversation with Peter that would change Peter's life. Look at verse 15. When they'd finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Looking at the disciples, do you love me? I told you you were the rock. Do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will dress you and lead, where you, lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. See, Peter would go on to die as a martyr in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now, several things here in this first story. Peter's failed Jesus miserably. We've talked about that. Specifically, he denied Christ three times, right? He claimed to not know Christ three times. He fled from Christ. He failed at least three times. And in this moment, in this breakfast by the sea that had to feel like those awkward conversations that you've been a part of, right? You know those awkward conversations? I, I'm like the king of awkward conversations. I, I just ask questions, and everybody knows the gossip, and I don't know the gossip, and so I'll ask people, like, how's so-and-so? Oh, we broke up six months ago. Thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome. Like, right? like if pregnancy, I don't even touch that. Like, if you look pregnant or you are pregnant, I'm not going to ask. It's not because I'm rude. It's because I'm scared. Like, that's... <laughs> so Peter's in this awkward conversation, and Jesus is asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we're told after that third repeat that Peter is hurt. Because Jesus hasn't asked Peter three different questions. He's asked Peter one question three different times. 
the same question he was asked when he denied Jesus three different times. Now, now this feels like Jesus confronting Peter's failure, but notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, yeah, well, why did you deny me then? Do you love me? Yeah, I love you, Jesus. Then why'd you fail me? He doesn't scold Peter. He doesn't lecture Peter. But instead, he immediately invites Peter. He says, you follow me. I know you failed, but follow me. Follow me, because I'm a risen Savior. The second story, it doesn't include failure, but, but it's got a heart of intellectual doubt. Now, here's what I mean by that. Jesus had already risen. He had already come back from the dead. He'd already appeared to his disciples, except when he appeared, the disciple Thomas wasn't actually with them at the time. He missed it, and because he missed it, all the other disciples had told him about it, and his faith wouldn't let him believe it. He wouldn't believe that his rabbi, his teacher, had truly defeated death. So his mind took over in control of his faith. And in John 20, verse 25, it says this. Thomas says, unless, so many doubts rooted in the word unless, right? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, again, I, I can't prove this, but to me, Thomas's doubt seems safer at this point than faith. See, we've criticized Thomas for centuries, right? We know Thomas as what? Doubting Thomas. Well, how would you like that to be your descriptor of your faith? Like, miserable Justin, doubting Justin, like, failing Justin, broken Justin. Like, I don't want that. That's how we've labeled Thomas. Now, here's what I think. I think we've missed it because imagine spending three and a half years following this mentor, following this person, this rabbi who has poured into your life, who's taught you things, who's shown you things that you never imagined, and then you watch this mentor die on a cross. Imagine what this does to your heart. So for Thomas, perhaps this moment isn't an effort just to doubt, but it's maybe a defense mechanism. Maybe it's a way to say, I can't let my heart trust that he's alive. I can't let my heart go there. Unless I actually touch him, I won't believe it because I don't want to hurt that badly. Again, except for one thing, when a Savior comes back in victory over death, we just can't hide in our minds. See, verse 26 says this, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Wouldn't that be fun if you were Jesus? Hey, Thomas, I heard about that thing you said. Put your finger right there in the hole, buddy. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Watch this. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now again, a few things. One, I love that Jesus allows Thomas to stay in his doubt for a whole week. You know why I love that? Because when we live in our minds for that long of time, we realize how lonely it is to live in our minds. Amen? Some of you can't get past anxiety because you, you are living in your mind and you want out of it, but you haven't found a way out of it. Jesus says, I want you to understand how lonely this is. See, the truth is I've sat with atheists who are staunch in their intellectual belief, and I don't mind having those conversations. I've conversed with atheists for years, and when I ask them about their heart, I watch them emotionally retreat into their head because the heart is a scary place to come out of your mind too. But it's one week later that Jesus shatters these intellectual doubts, he shows up and he says, go ahead and touch the wounds that you said you wouldn't believe I was risen until you touched them. And you know what I love most about Thomas's response? He doesn't even touch them. He's just like, my, my Lord, my God, like this is crazy. 
This is ridiculous. This is an absurd story, and yet I can't get away from it. See, Thomas's proclamation of my Lord and my God can only come from something that has ripped him out of his head, back into his heart, and caused him to worship a risen Savior. The third story, probably my favorite story after Jesus' resurrection, mainly because it's the very first story after his resurrection. It's the story of an unlikely woman who's sitting in a garden. This woman is known in the Bible simply as Mary Magdalene. And she's called Mary Magdalene because she was from a village called Magdala. Now, here's what we know about Mary. There's one verse in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, that tells us she was a follower of Jesus. It says the disciples and some of the women, including Mary Magdalene, and then it says this in parentheses, from whom seven demons came out. That's all we know about her. That's like her life story. Okay, so you got Doubting Thomas and Demonic Mary. That's what you got. She's had seven demons come out of her. Now, I know that's not language we use in our world today, but say the least, Mary Magdalene had a past, and the people knew about her past, all right? She had experienced the pain of inner demonic torture, which I believe is absolutely real. And most likely because of that, she had been stigmatized from her own community. She'd been ostracized. She'd been judged. She'd been cast out, mocked. And in Jesus, she found when Jesus came to her community of which she had been cast out emotionally, relationally, socially, she said, Jesus is more of a home than this community. Jesus has set me free. Jesus has offered healing. And she became one of his followers in a culture, by the way, that didn't recognize women as capable of following the rabbi. She was given standing. And now, listen, she's faced in this moment, in this Easter story, with the death of the one person who'd given her freedom and belonging. In the early hours of that Easter morning, still believing him to be dead, she had gone to the tomb because the tomb was empty with the disciples. The disciples returned home, and it says Mary stayed in the garden. Now, here's why I think she stayed in the garden. Because if Jesus was dead, she had no home. She had no place where she belonged. She didn't belong with these disciples. Their hopes had been crushed. She knew that a dead Savior was better than anything she could be offered. He was dead. She would just stay there. Now, initially, she's there weeping. But as she looks in this tomb, Jesus appears behind her, and he utters this simple question that starts her comeback. Look at John 20, verse 15. He asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Do you notice how each of these stories don't recognize who Jesus is? They don't know who he is. They don't recognize, because it's that absurd. If I told you a dead person was here talking to you, you'd be like, you're nuts. That's not him. He may look like him, but it's not him. It's a, Michael Jackson's still alive. Elvis still alive. No, they're not. This is a crazy story. And they don't know who he is until she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I'll get him. Jesus said to her, the most powerful Easter verse, I think, in all of history, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now notice this. She doesn't know her Savior until, until he speaks her name. Until he speaks her name. At the sound of her own name, Mary finds herself in the throes once again of hope. A dead Savior who's now alive, she recognizes that voice. She doesn't recognize the face because it doesn't make sense for dead people to come back to life. But the voice is unmistakable. The name that he calls her is unmistakable. She sees in the face of her now risen rabbi that nothing can take away, not even death can take away the gift this resurrection has given to her. You know, historically, listen, before the Christian story of Jesus coming back from the dead emerged, there weren't many other stories of life after death and existence in the world. 
Like the Greek writer Homer, he, he said this. He said death was a simple fact to be embraced. He said, you must endure and not be brokenhearted. Lamenting for your son will do no good at all. You will be dead yourself before you bring him back. There's the optimism of Greek philosophy. Aeschylus said it too. He said, once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Even today, this is an absurd story if we truly consider its nature. The man, listen, think about the nature of this story. The very man who called himself the living water hung on a cross and said, I thirst. The bread of life said he was hungry. The one who was claiming to be the resurrection and the life actually died. The high priest became the sacrifice. The apparent king of the Jews is killed while he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a dark story. It's a story that actually starts to tell us that suffering and loneliness are the path to grace. It's a story where the Son of God is given up for the sake of the world to be able to make a comeback. And this darkness is exactly what I've been suggesting over the past six weeks as we've talked about comebacks in God's kingdom. And yet, there's one more story I want you to hear today because maybe these stories seem too far away. Like you're thinking, well, yeah, you would apparently tell this story, but that's the same book. That Bible is the same book that says a guy lived in a fish for four days. How could we believe that? So I want you to hear one more story from someone right here and right now. I, I asked today on Easter Sunday if my friend Jenna would come and share with you all a bit of her own comeback story. So would you do me a favor and welcome Jenna to the stage? Jenna's an old pro at this now. We've done this three times. Started early this morning, right? <laughs> so Jenna, take just a minute and introduce yourself to everybody. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Um, my name is Jenna, like you said, and I'm a senior at Wesleyan. I study psychology and social justice. Um, so I came in initially to Buchanan to play soccer. I thought that was going to be the extent of my identity, but I sort of fell in love with service and human rights and social justice and those things, and that's actually what kept me here. Um, I ended up in the church because of a good friend, Lauren Hatcher, who brought me here, and I've come here since my freshman year. So I'm happy to be here today to share my story a little awesome. bit. Thanks, Jenna. Jenna and I met in the, in the life of the church and began talking, struck up a conversation, and I got to hear some of Jenna's story, and um, she'll tell you I had to convince her that this story was worthy of Easter, uh, and you'll see why in just a little bit. But Jenna, share, share a little bit about your journey the past year or so. What's, what's been going on? Sure. So um, I'm not good at being vulnerable, <laughs> but I'm going to do my absolute best to share this story with you all today because I think it's very important. Um, so last year, I got a scholarship to study abroad for the summer in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I ended up in Kosovo for the majority of the time. So I was in Eastern Europe traveling around, learning about war and genocide and state building, post-conflict societies. So it's not just that I was in, in those places, but I was learning about the brokenness that was there. I was surrounded by it. I was meeting people who lived through it. And I felt like I was reliving through it, through the stories every day. <laughs> and so um, I, I sort of came back feeling a bit lost and like I was carrying some kind of secret maybe, like I was carrying the secret of the brokenness in the world. I went to one tiny place, that's all I've seen, and there was so much there that I, I never could have grasped until I'd left my comfort zone and saw it for myself. And I can't imagine what else is out there that I don't even know yet. Yeah, and this echoes so much. We, when we send teams to Ethiopia, we talk with them a lot about the experience of coming home 
and, and how helpless you feel. We, we talk about how you'll come back to the U.S. airports and you'll just, you'll find yourself going, I just hate white people. We're so greedy. And all the while you're like, I'm really white. Like, that's who I am and that's what I do. And, um, and I think it's that reverse culture shock. And, and, and so, Jenna, what was it like coming back into this context and processing all of what you'd seen? So I thought I was coming back home and so I'd feel okay again. I was so weary. I was weary from hearing this brokenness and seeing it. And I thought like, okay, I'm going home. I love my Wesleyan community. I love my friends. I love my family. And I came home and I just felt like confused and alone. And just like I had something to hide. And like I had this weight on my shoulders that I had to carry, but I could not express like I couldn't figure out what words to use to share that, so I didn't really share it, and I just tried to carry it alone for a long time, which was really hard. Yeah, so you're coming back from this trip, you're entering into the fall semester, and thinking things are going to get better, and they definitely don't. They definitely get a lot worse. Talk about what, what took place. So um, a lot of the people here will know from just being in the community about Garrett's suicide last year, and... I can only speak from my own experience with this, and it's really hard to talk about, but being in such close proximity to that, it was like I'd seen pain and I'd seen brokenness on this mass level all summer. I was trying to battle with that, and then I came back and I saw just, I saw death in front of me, and it's terrifying, and it's heartbreaking, and it put me in a really bad place for a long time and really probably changed my life, honestly. So at this point, and, and you said this, you've experienced broad scope human suffering, you're studying this stuff. I mean, I understand you go from playing soccer to studying war and politics and social justice. That's a, that's a big jump. And then you're seeing it at the micro level of directly in front of you, the brokenness of one student who decided to end his life. How did God enter into this journey that you were on? So um, Justin can attest to this, that we started meeting up like late in last semester. And I was like, all right, let's le read the Bible. Like, and I think I was trying to disprove something. Because you in, were. I, yeah, I could tell. <laughs> I was, <laughs> in Bosnia especially, the ethnicities and the politics are split up by religion. So if you're a Bosniak, then you're a Muslim. Or if you're Muslim, you're a Bosniak, vice versa. If you're a Serb, you're Orthodox Christian. If you're a Croat, then you're Catholic. And so I saw the institution of religion cause all of this hate <laughs> and war and violence. And I, I just questioned everything I thought I knew. I questioned my faith. I questioned my life. I questioned what I was trying to do with my life. And I didn't even realize I was asking all of these things. It just was overtaking my mind without consciously knowing, I think. Um, but I started to challenge those questions that I had with Justin, and I, I definitely was trying to disprove something. I was like, I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to read scripture and try to figure this out because I don't understand. And I actually picked up um, the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, um, and I felt like I could relate to the pain in that book, and I could, I could see that suffering, and I was like, I need to look for God in this. Like, he must be here somewhere under all of this pain and this brokenness. And so I started to try to figure out what that looked like for me and how I could start searching for him underneath all of this pain that I was feeling. Um, and so 
one of our first Sundays in this building rolls around. If you guys have been here, that you know we have a trough, right? And our trough is for baptisms. I know it's weird, but we, don't, we haven't built any baptismal yet. And our feeding trough gets filled with water, and we've got some baptisms scheduled. And um, what, what took place for you on that Sunday? Because you definitely were not scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> he had a couple scheduled, and he said that anyone who felt called to be baptized could come forward. And we always talk about the Holy Spirit and, like, what that is and how it could act in you. But I didn't understand what that was until I felt it in me. And I was, like, shaking. And I was, my heart was beating out of my chest. And I was smiling, probably the most real smile I'd smiled in six months. <laughs> and I was like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I'm so logical. I was like, this makes no sense. I don't understand. <laughs> but I decided to trust that and to actually, like, dive into that faith and just take that leap. And so I went forward to be baptized. And it was more than just me coming forward to say I'm a Christian. It was like I could let go of this weight on my shoulders of, of death. I felt like I was carrying that around and that I was carrying this, like, brokenness in the world, and I couldn't explain it. And I was able to just hand that over to God and say, help me. Like, I can't do this by myself. And it really changed my life to look at myself from December to now. I'm a different person, and I'm really glad that I'm here to share this story. Praise God. Can we thank Jenna? So much. Good job. That's not an Easter story. I don't know one. <laughs> Friends, I, today the best thing I can do is tell you these stories because these stories are true. You have a comeback from failure in Peter. You have a comeback from doubt in Thomas. You have a comeback from her own self, uh, what she perceives as her self-worthlessness in Mary Magdalene. You have a comeback that's still going on in, in Jenna. Now, here, here's the thing about these stories. You can argue the ones that are written about in Scripture as maybe being fabricated, as maybe being too exaggerated. You, you can debate the historical resurrection and whether that really happened. What you cannot argue with me and what you certainly cannot argue with Jenna is that 2,000, more than 2,000 years later, in this very moment, in this very place, you just heard a young woman share a story of how Jesus is still resurrecting lives. He's still writing comebacks. He's still shaping new life. He's still carrying out resurrections. You cannot argue that on this day, all over the world, we are gathered with other brothers and sisters celebrating the same story of resurrection that many of you want to argue about. You cannot argue that something keeps drawing skeptics toward this hope that lives continue to be changed, that you know, and I know personally, those who have been changed by resurrection, that some of you showed up today because you just can't figure out the person that keeps in inviting you here, and you got to see what's going on, and is this some weird cult, what's happening, I'll let you make your own decision, but you cannot argue that resurrection is still happening, and it can't be stopped. I'm going to invite the band to come. I, I read this week an editorial in the New York Times that was written clear back in April of 1941, and its words still ring so true. It says this, Easter has its message for all who sincerely search for truth. Wherever prophets have reached the mountaintops, wherever dreamers have walked with their dreams, wherever men have died for their brothers or a cause greater than themselves, there has been 
This passing from the nightmare of despair and pain to the Easter dawn and the new springtime of hope, season after season, generation by generation. I love this 1940s writing. The sad earth writhes in autumnal agony. Evil marshals its battalions. Down flutter the forlorn dead leaves. Silent or gone are all the singing birds. Man seems to dwell in a hostile universe. Don't we know that weight of death? But these defeats are for a time only. The sun returns. The rain disenchants the soil. Seeds sprout. There's again singing among new leaves. God is not mocked, neither on that awful day when the veil of the temple was torn, nor by any legions of hell on any roads, in any mountains, at any ports. There is no final defeat for goodness, nor for justice, nor for mercy, nor for brotherhood, so long as man has faith in them. And then another writer said this, no matter where one stands in terms of faith, no matter where you stand in terms of faith, Jesus, be he God or man or in the view of the church, both was perhaps the most important figure who ever drew breath. And he will fascinate, enthrall, and confound us to the end of time. And if believers have it right, even beyond. Even beyond. Friends, if Easter means anything, it means that comebacks are possible. It means that you can come back. And so as we close today, I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to pray for you, but I would love to invite you to find yourself in one or all of these stories. What's your story? Maybe your story is the story of Peter, the story of failure, the story that looks back at your life in this moment and says, I've blown it. I have broken things. I have caused, I have wreaked havoc in relationships. I could easily live under the shame of broken relationships. But today, my Savior who lives is inviting me simply to follow him. He's not scolding me. He's not lecturing me. He's not mad at me. He's actually saying, I still love you. Let's go do this thing. Maybe your story is a story of doubt and skepticism, just like Thomas. Maybe you've built a fortress in your mind that has removed you from your heart. And maybe today, Jesus is calling you and saying, just touch me, just encounter me. Just trust. It doesn't make logical sense. I know it's an absurd story, but today maybe you could trust. Maybe your story is like Mary Magdalene, and it's a story of feeling worthless. It's a story of feeling like you don't belong, like you're lonely, like you have no one that cares for you, no community around you. But today there's an invitation from a living Savior that says, no matter where you go, I will be your home. I'll be your place. And maybe your story is like Jenna, and you're still trying to figure it out. But maybe today you find yourself in this resurrection story. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I've done this in every service, I want to just simply give you the opportunity to respond. If you're here and you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I need these stories. I need these stories of resurrection. See, it doesn't ever go away that we keep needing resurrection. Whether you feel like a failure, whether you feel like a skeptic, whether you feel like you're worthless, follower of Christ, your Savior lives and he's going to triumph in spite of whatever story you've been living because resurrection always wins and if you're here and maybe you've been that skeptic and you've been saying I, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I don't even know what that means, I don't know what it means to be a good Christian I don't know what it means to give myself to that but some of this makes sense if you feel like you've failed too far to be able to to be loved by a good God. You've caused too much shame, too much brokenness. Maybe today is the invitation for you to be forgiven. If you 
feel like you have no value, I simply want to say to you, there's a good God that's still alive that loves you deeply. And he wants you to come home. He wants to be your home. And so today I'm inviting you as we pray, just in your head, in your heart, in your own words, to pray these words that God, that Jesus, I want to say yes to you. Jesus, I want to come home to you. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to cross this line of faith. Scripture's so clear. We talk about this all the time. If we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, the scripture says we will be saved. We'll be resurrected. We'll be living again.